Joshua chapter 12. Joshua chapter 12. We actually read chapter 12 last week. I didn't expect that verses 16 through 23 of chapter 11 were going to take up the whole class time last week, but they did. So I'm not going to reread chapter 12 today, but I don't expect chapter 12 to take that long, so we are going to read chapter 13, and we will then start with chapter 12 and work our way into chapter 13. So Joshua chapter 13, and remember the first 12 chapters are the entering of the land and the taking of the land, and then chapter 13 starts with the distribution of the land or the possession of the land, as some refer to it. So, Joshua chapter 13, verse 1. Now, Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. This is the land that yet remaineth all the borders of the Palestines, and all Geshuri, from Sihor, which is before Egypt, even unto the borders of Ekron, northward, which is counted to the Canaanite, five lords of the Philistines, the Gazathites and the Ashtathites and the Escalonites and the Gittites and the Ekronites and the Avites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Mira that is beside the Sidonians unto Aphek to the borders of the Amorites. And the land of the Giblites and all Lebanon toward the sunrising from Baalgad under Mount Hermon unto the entering into Hamath. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon unto Mizrafoth Maam and all the Sidonians, them will I drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide thou it by lot unto the Israelites for an inheritance as I have commanded thee. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance unto the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh, with whom the Reubenites and the Gadites have received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond from a roar which is upon the river Arnon and city that is in the midst of the river and all the plain of Mediba unto Dibon. And all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, which reigned in Heshbon, unto the border of the children of Ammon. And Gilead, and the border of the Geshurites, and Machathites, and all Mount Hermon, and all Bashan unto Salca. All the kingdom of Og in Bashan, which reigned in Ashtaroth, and in Adri, who remained of the remnant of the giants. For these did Moses smite and cast them out. Nevertheless, the children of Israel expelled not the Geshurites nor the Machathites, but the Geshurites and the Machathites dwell among the Israelites until this day. Only unto the tribe of Levi he gave none inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said unto them. And Moses gave unto the tribe of the children of Reuben inheritance according to their families. And their coast was from Aror, that is, on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the river, and all the plain by Mediba. Heshbon and all her cities that are in the plain, Debon and Bamoth Baal and Beth Baal Meon, and Jehazah and Kedemoth and Mephath and Kirjathaim and Sibna and Zareph Shehar in the mount of the valley, and Beth Peor and Ashdoth Pisgah and Beth Jeshemoth, and all the cities of the plain and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, which reigned in Heshbon whom Moses smote with the princes of Midian, Evi and Recham and Zur and Hur and Reba, which were dukes of Sihon dwelling in the country. Balaam also the son of Beor, the soothsayer, did the children of Israel slay with the sword among them that were slain by them. 
And the border of the children of Reuben was Jordan, and the border thereof. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben after their families, the cities and the villages thereof. And Moses gave inheritance unto the tribe of Gad, even unto the children of Gad, according to their families. And their coast was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead, and half the land of the children of Ammon unto Aror that is before Rabbah. And from Heshbon unto Ramoth Mizpah and Betanim, and from Mahanaim unto the border of Debur. And in the valley, Beth Aram, and Beth Nimrah, and Succoth, and Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, Jordan and his, and his brother, even unto the edge of the sea of Chinnereth, on the other side Jordan eastward. This is the generation of the children of Gad after their families, the cities, and their villages. And Moses gave inheritance unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, and this was the possession of the half-tribe of the children of Manasseh by their families. And their coast was from Mahanaim, all Bashan, all the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jer, which are in Bashan, threescore cities. And half Gilead and Ashtaroth and Adri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, were pertaining unto the children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, even to the one half of the, tr- of the children of Maker by their families. These are the countries which Moses did distribute for inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side Jordan by Jericho eastward. But unto the tribe of Levi, Moses gave not any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, as he said unto them. And let's pray. Father, again, it's always a privilege to study your word, and I pray that our time would be well spent, that it would be beneficial, and that we would grow in our faith and in our knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, as I said, we read chapter 13, but we're actually going to start in chapter 12, verse 1. We read chapter 12 last week. And again, chapter 12 is the conclusion of the taking of the land. Verses 1 through 6 are a recap of the kings defeated while Moses was the leader before Joshua took over. And some believe, probably understandably, that these these Further references to the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River are so that we don't lose sight of their importance and we don't lose sight of what was done prior to the last seven years that they spent on the west side of the Jordan River. Uh, It's very, as we've seen stressed and emphasized throughout the book, unity among all of Israel was very important. And so having had seven years elapse with really the focus being on capturing the land for the nine and a half tribes. It's probably emphasized here to just make sure that nobody forgets about what was done before and what the two and a half tribes are to inherit. And, you know, there's a there's a lesson here. All of God's people are important. Uh, none of them are, are insignificant. The church, as we see in the New Testament, is all one body. Every member is essential. The other side, Jordan, you you see often the land on the east side of the Jordan River referred to as the other side of the Jordan. And, um, you know, whether or not that's kind of a a discredit in in any way, um, we know from previous studies that the land on the west side of the Jordan River was the original land that had been promised to Abraham. And this land on the east side of the Jordan River was given later, uh, you know, by Moses to the to the two and a half tribes, specifically at their request. Verse number two, the mention here of Sihon, king of the Amorites, 
God continually reminds us that these nations were conquered. Um, we, we've seen many references to the fact that they were giants. We, we see that again here in verses 4 and 5. Again, underscoring that God is faithful and that the fears of the ten spies that returned with Joshua and Caleb, their fears were ungrounded. They, they, they were, you know, they, there was no basis for them. And God is underscoring His faithfulness that He kept His word. He kept His promise to give them the land. We're not going to go through it again, but uh, several weeks ago we looked at uh, Numbers chapter 32 and Joshua chapter 24 verse 8, and and we saw that the resistance of these nations on the east side of the river was specifically God's plan. It was God's will. It was God's intention that the borders of Israel be expanded and that the original promise to Abraham be enlarged. And this land on the east side of the river has become a part of their land. And, and again, we're not going to go through that all, all that again, but I think, I think it's clear that, um, you know, we don't want to detect disobedience on the part of the Israelites in having settled for this land. You know, these two and a half tribes, they're not being disobedient by having this land. And Moses wasn't being disobedient to the Lord in giving them that land. And again, we looked at we looked at all that several weeks ago. Verse number three, we see the mention of the salt sea. Of course, today we know that is the Dead Sea. Uh, nothing can live in that sea, which is of course why it's called the Dead Sea. The water is over eight times saltier than the water in the ocean. The shores of the Dead Sea is the lowest elevation on the earth. And it gets very hot there. there. None of the water ever flows in. It only, or never flows out. It just evaporates. It flows in from the Jordan River. But this was and, and continues to be one of the significant borders of the, the land of Israel. And then again in verse 4 and 5, we see that the giants are mentioned. It's, it's made clear that they didn't dwell in just a few locations. They were actually scattered all over the land. And God was faithful to drive them out to fulfill His promises. Verse number 7 is where we start into the, the list of, of all of the achievements, all of the accomplishments that God did for them. The land that was conquered on the west side of the Jordan River was certainly a lot larger than the land that was conquered on the east side of the Jordan River, understandably, because it's going to provide the home for a lot more people, nine and a half tribes as opposed to two and a half. In verse number 8, there's a, another description of the land. We see the mountains and the valleys and the plains, the springs, the wilderness. And, you know, Israel is a very diverse land. It, uh, there's a lot of variety. It um, was always promised as being more than sufficient for supplying all of their needs. The, there was going to be plenty of food. Uh, not only for the people, but also for their livestock. There was going to be plenty of wood to build their homes. It was just going to be, you know, they weren't just going to have enough to get by. They were going to have more than enough to flourish. And um, 
You know, that's that's something that God consistently does. You know, the land is many times referred to as the land that floweth with milk and honey. Milk, of course, being the 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 reference there to nourishment and honey really being a bringing to mind, you know, the excessiveness of it, the abundance of it, the sweetness of it, you know, just that it again, that it was more than enough. They, you know, they weren't just going to have enough to get by. And then in verses nine through through 24, we see a list of the 31 kings that had been conquered. They seem to be listed pretty much in the order in which they were conquered. Um, again, kind of drawing our attention to the fact that, you know, for being such a small piece of land, um, it supported a lot of people and supported them very well. It was a very rich land. The population of Israel today is just over 8 million people. But... Uh, you know, it, it's it's sufficient to, to meet all of their needs. And, you know, one thing that I've thought about as, I re, as I've read through the book of Joshua several times, I don't feel envious in any way of the land that, that Israel has been given. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a wonderful land. It's a rich land. It's, it's a beautiful land. But um, I think the book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes clear that, um, you know, as New Testament believers... Our spiritual blessings are far better than anything they ever had, either material or spiritual. So I don't know, you know, at least for me personally, I don't need to look at, you know, any of this and, and be envious about it. Um, I'm very grateful for what God has done for us. And, you know, this, this was his plan for Israel. And then in verses, as we see this list of kings, you know, as we read this last week, you know, one might think, well, this is kind of a tedious list. It, it really isn't... Uh, you know, some may conclude that it's not really beneficial to read it. Um, if you've ever read your Bible through and you, you get to the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, you know you might have a tendency to want to skip over them. And and um, I, I think you'll miss some stuff if you do. I think if you if you start if you tend to skip over some of the things that we're going to have in the next several chapters in the Book of Joshua, you're going to miss some some really good stuff. And you know, this is to draw attention to the fact that God was faithful, that He delivered all of these groups to, you know, He delivered the victory over all of these people. Um, you know, one of the commentators made the point that if we would list our blessings specifically and individually and, and make a list, we would probably have a tendency to be much more grateful to the Lord for what He's done for us. But we have a tendency to kind of generalize and and look at things as a whole and and sometimes it's beneficial to you know to look at things on uh, you know in detail and to make a list, even if that list seems tedious. And Dale Ralph Davis, I, I I like the analogy that he made. He said he sees this as somewhat the foreshadowing of Revelation eleven fifteen, which says the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And I think that's you know that's appropriate. God is ultimately someday going to have the victory over, not that he doesn't have the victory already, but he's going to demonstrate that he has the victory over this entire world. Chapter 13 presents a little bit of a dilemma. It says, now Joshua was old and stricken in years. Joshua, we're, we're not, it's very, we cannot be certain exactly how old Joshua was. I think he was probably around 95. We know 
We know for certain that Caleb was 85, where we see that in chapter 14. And we know that Joshua is nearing the end of his life. God has told him that he is old and stricken in years. And of course, stricken there being a reference to the fact that he's getting old. He cannot continue at the same pace that, that he has been going. And, you know, that's something that we all, that we all have to face. It's, it's a realization that none of us can escape. The contrast here is, I, I think, pretty obvious. We don't want to miss it. God is saying here in verse number one that Joshua is unable to continue. I mean, certainly at the pace that, that he is, and, and, you know, before too long, he will die. Notice down in verse number six, Notice the contrast. God says, All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon unto Mizraphath, Maim, and all the Sidonians, them will I drive out. God doesn't die. He's not mortal like we are. There is no end. He will be there for every generation. And so even though Joshua is nearing the end of his life, the God says the work will be completed. I will drive them out. And and again, as we saw at the end of chapter 10, God is taking credit for everything that has been up until this, been done up until this point anyway. God is taking credit for having, for those that have already been driven out. Joshua is saying here, in, or God is saying here in verse 1, essentially that um, because they have failed to drive out all the inhabitants, they haven't conquered the land in a sense in its entirety that it can't wait. The dividing of the land can't wait. And so, since Joshua is old and stricken in years, he needs to turn his attention toward the distribution or the dividing of the land. Um, God says, you know, there will be time and certainly instructions to the people to continue to, you know, drive out every little pocket of resistance later on. But for now, God is telling Joshua, you're getting the end of your life, and so the task that I have for you is to divide up the land amongst the, tri- the tribes. God still intended for Israel to occupy more land. The dilemma here is, is if you're reading, uh, you know, you notice here in, in verse 1 at the end of the verse, it says, there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. Now, if you turn back to chapter 11, verse number 23, it says, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. So, how is... Chapter 13, verse 1, not a contradiction of 11.23. It says, Joshua took the whole land, but yet it says there remaineth very much land to be possessed. We're going to get to that, but um, one of the things that I have discovered over the years, and, and of course, you know, I'm 47, so... Um, been studying the Bible a long time. Um, we know, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, that some of the things that Paul had written were hard to understand. And But Peter goes on in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 to say that if you will make an effort to understand those things, it's going to help you grow in grace and in knowledge. And... When you come across seeming contradictions or discrepancies in the Bible, it's, it's worthwhile to pursue those and to investigate the, the reasons for that. And I think 
I think you'll come to the conclusion, as I have, it's very rewarding to do that. It's very much an encouragement. It will, your faith will grow and your confidence in God's Word will only increase. Having said that, though, you do reach a point, um, at least for me, where I cannot, I don't have the time to pursue every little discrepancy or seeming contradiction in the Bible. But having pursued a lot of them and, and arrived at very good explanations for those, then I don't have to, I don't have to chase everyone down. I don't have to pursue everyone. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's the confidence in God's Word comes with having done that. And so every time I come across a verse that seems like it may be a contradiction of another verse, I don't have to stop and, and divert my attention and get on a long rabbit trail and go and pursue that. Like I said, I think that's very beneficial, but hopefully you get to a point where you just, hey, God's Word, it means what it says, and it says what it means, and we don't, we don't always have to doubt it. Now, with regard specifically to... Though to this seeming contradiction, first of all, much land, um, the land that's being referred to, and it's described there in verses 2 through 6, is really, as a percentage of the land, probably well less than 10%. Um, You know, we're talking about, as we see there in those verses, what we know today in modern day Israel as the Gaza Strip. And some of this land referred to in verse 6 with Lebanon is modern-day Lebanon, and some of it is the Golan Heights, and some of it is land that is controlled by Syria. But even today, if you look at that land, it probably accounts for less than 10%. So, you know, in some way, yeah, it's a lot of land, but, but it's relative to the amount of land that's already been obtained. Um, you know, there there. There are going, there were, and there are going to continue to be lingering pockets of resistance among the people that they had taken, that they had taken control of. But um, you know, as we've mentioned several times, God is going to use those lingering resistors to test the faith of Israel as as they you know as they proceed through the next several decades. But in verse number eleven, in Chapter number 11, verse number 23, when it says they took the whole land, I think what that's referring to, and I think what most of what I read comes to the conclusion of, is that the major battles had been fought and supremacy had been demonstrated, even though small pockets of resistance still, you know, small pockets of resistance were still there. Resistance. Um the word that we have here at the end of verse 1 in chapter 13, possessed, really means occupy. So that's really the distinction between 11.23 and 13.1. 11.23 is, is really referring more to the taking of the land, demonstrating superiority, driving those pockets of resistance into hiding, whereas What's, what God is saying here in verse number one is you need to go into that land and actually occupy it, live there, dwell there, make sure that those people don't have a chance to put up further resistance. You know, I thought about that this week as I was at work. I probably spent more time in meetings this week than I've probably spent in any week in the last several years. Um, and sometimes you have to do that. Um, 
as, as some of you know, I, I'm a, a software designer or, or a developer, and we have to develop the design for the software before we actually translate it into code. And so we, you know, we have long meetings and we discuss strategies and we agree on an outline and, you know, what the software is supposed to do. When I come out of those meetings, when we finally have answered all of the questions that we have, I have a sense of relief because the design is completed. Even though I haven't written any code, I still have to take that design back and then translate that into computer code. Well, to me, that's probably similar to what's happened here. The sense of relief has come to Israel because they have demonstrated supremacy over the land. They have convinced the inhabitants of Canaan that they are in control of the land, but they haven't actually gone back and occupied it yet. And so that's why I said, you know, and I, maybe some of you teachers would look at that somewhat like a rough draft. You know, your students, you, you encourage them to write a rough draft, but then they've got to go back and they've got to polish up the, the fine points and, and turn it into something a little bit more presentable. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of different analogies. I know I was reading about um, World War II. And in World War II, after the Japanese signed the surrender agreement in August of 1945, there were a lot of holdouts and stragglers who refused to accept defeat. And they were they continued to fight and put up resistance. And all the way through the end of the 1940s and even into the early 1950s, there were a lot of Japanese soldiers who refused to accept defeat and were ultimately killed. And a lot of people aren't really aware. I was not aware of that, but as I was reading about that, that, that was very interesting to me. That, to me, is very similar to what is probably being, be, is probably being described here. So you might look at 11.23 as saying, you know, the Japanese surrendered, but you might look at 13.1 as saying, there's a lot of people out there that are saying, we don't agree with that surrender. We're not, we're not, we're not going along with that. And they've got to be driven out. They've got to, that last bit of resistance has got to be squashed. Anyone have any comments before we, we move on to, to verse number seven? I'll make sure I leave time. Well, again, in verses 2 through 6, the land is described. The land that is to be possessed is described. Um, the written record of the land was extremely valuable then. It's still extremely valuable today. The Israelites rely on the Bible to, to establish their borders, to know what it is that, that God expected them to have. God tells Joshua there in verse number 6 that he expects him to divide the land even though it hasn't been wholly occupied. God expects Joshua to treat the land as though it is theirs because in God's eyes it is theirs. Now, in verse number 6, this, this phrase that we have, divide thou it by lot towards the end of the verse. If, if you're like me, the first time you read that, you might think that that's referring to a lot like a parcel of ground, but that's not what that's referring to. What we have there is actually the, the idea that the word lot carries in many areas of Scripture, the idea of casting lots. Turn to Joshua chapter 14, verse 2. It says, By lot was their inheritance, as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Again, that's the same idea. Turn to Joshua chapter 18, verse number 8. It says, And the men arose and went away, and Joshua charged them that went to describe the land, saying, Go and walk through the land and describe it, and come again to me, that I may here cast lots for you before the Lord in Shiloh. Verse number 10, 
And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua divided the land unto the children of Israel according to their divisions. And we see the same thing in the book of Numbers. Now turn back to Numbers chapter 26. And we're familiar with the New Testament. That's how they chose the, the uh, replacement for Judas Iscariot. They cast lots in Acts chapter 1. Numbers chapter 26. And we don't, exa- we don't know exactly what casting lots meant. Uh, a lot of what I read said it had to, to do something with throwing down pebbles. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of in our world. We're a little bit unfamiliar. Or we're uncomfortable. Certainly I'm uncomfortable. I'm not much of a gambler. I'm not, uh, you know, I heard this week or last week that some furniture owner in Houston gambled, you know, he flipped a coin to decide whether the Broncos or the Seahawks were going to win, and then he ended up losing $7 million in furniture over it. Well, I'm not, I'm not like that. I, I, I'm not willing to take that kind of a chance. But we don't know exactly what this kind of a lot entailed. Numbers chapter 26, verse 56. It says, According to the lot shall the possession thereof be divided between many and few. And then uh, Numbers chapter 33, verse 54. It says, And Moses and Eleazar the priests took the gold... Or I'm in the wrong chapter. 33:54. And you shall divide the land by lot for an inheritance among your families. And we and if we read the, the if we continue to read the verse, and this was actually also stated in in Numbers chapter 26. It says, "And to the more ye shall give the more inheritance, and to the fewer ye shall give the less inheritance. Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falleth, according to the tribes of your fathers. Ye shall inherit." So we see here in Numbers chapter 26 and chapter 33 that the the land was to be distributed based on the size of the tribe that was receiving the land. Um, Numbers chapter 26 contains the census of the men, and so we are told which which tribes were the largest by number. And again, verse. Uh, Chapters 26 and 30 and chapter 33 make it clear here that the, the land was to be divided based upon that, and which you know is seems logical that the, the tribes that had more people would need more land, and the tribes that had fewer people wouldn't need as much land. Now Judah was the largest tribe. We go back to Numbers 26:22. They had 76,500 people, and you know typically when you see a map, if you have a map in your Bible that shows the land as it's described and divided, typically Judah is shown as having a, a pretty large portion of the, of the nation of Israel, the, in the south-central portion. Ephraim and Manasseh are also large tribes, and, and if they were still combined as a single tribe of Joseph, they would be the largest tribe. But typically the maps also show them as having received a lot of land. So, for the most part, it, it seems that these instructions were followed, that the largest pieces of land were given to the tribes with the largest number of men. And so what does it mean then that the lot was to determine the land? Well, as I understand it, the lot determined the location of the land, not the size of the land. In other words, they would cast the lot and then they would interpret 
however they interpreted the results of that, then Joshua would decide the location that was given to a particular tribe. But then he would take into consideration how, how large that tribe was in deciding then how much land in that area was to be allocated to that tribe. Now, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And we see that. Um, again, we're not told exactly how Joshua figured all this out or how he interpreted the results of the casting of the lots, but you know, we're going to see next week or the week after when we get to Numbers chapter 14 that Caleb got the land that he asked for. And Joshua ends up getting the land that he asked for. Um, and we know the, the two and a half tribes at the beginning, you know, they got the land that they asked for. They're not The casting of lots is, is really for the nine and a half tribes. So it was, it, was, it was completely within the Lord's control. The Lord, you know, the Lord was in it. And just like we don't doubt when we read Acts chapter 1 that, you know, the Lord, the Lord was in determining the replacement of, of Judas' replacement. Turn back to Joshua. Joshua chapter 13. One might ask why the land needs to be divided. Why couldn't they all just live in peace and harmony and share everything? It just doesn't work that way. (laughs) Uh, Like Pastor said a couple of weeks ago in uh, going through the book of Acts, you know, it's... It wasn't communism. Um, you know, in Acts chapter 2 and, and chapter 4, we're, we're told that the early church gave their land and they sold it. And they divided up the profits according to as each person had need. And we're told that Barnabas gave his land. But, you know, the thing we don't want to lose sight of is they, they, they were, not, were not ever told that they were compelled to do that. They were not ordered to do that. It wasn't demanded. Um, it was done voluntarily. And that's, you know, what we're told to do in 2 Corinthians 9-7. We're to give cheerfully. We're to give voluntarily. We're not to give out of compulsion. And it, it just doesn't work that way. You know, when, when people own land themselves, they are going to be more likely to protect it and to care for it and nourish it and just treat it better. I mean, people generally treat things better when they're their own. People fight for the smallest piece of land. Uh, I have, a, as many of you know, I have a fence in around my backyard. But 20 years ago, I didn't have a fence around my backyard. And there was already a fence on the right to the north, and there was already a fence to the left on the back. And as I got out my my deed and I began to read my deed, and it said my property was was so wide. And as I went out and measured the the distance from the, the fence on the south to the fence on the north, it was 15 feet longer than what my deed said it was supposed to be. And so I hired a surveyor to come out and survey the land, and he did. And he found the two property pins on the back two corners of my land. And it was discovered that the fence on the south side of my property had been put up 15 feet too far so, so that my yard was 15, bigger than, 15 feet bigger than it was supposed to be, and my neighbor's yard was 15 feet smaller than it was supposed to be. So a lot of trees that I thought were on my side of the fence were really on what should have been her side of the fence. So I went over and I explained to her, you know, that I had had a survey done and that, 
that, you know, it was discovered that, that my yard was 15 two feet too big, and, and they, they had gone over and even found the pin on the other side of her property, and sure enough, you know, it was clear, and so she was pretty happy about that. Wow. You know, she, she was, let's, let's take that fence down immediately and get it in the right spot. You know, and that's, that's the way people are. I mean, they, they want their land, you know, no matter how small of a, of a piece of ground that is. And, and we did. I mean, that was, that wasn't a problem. That's the way it was supposed to have been. We don't, we don't know why the fence was put up wrong in the first place, but, you know, she, she was very adamant about getting that land right away and she didn't want to give any of it up. And, you know, in 1877, as many of you know, the, the Missouri River flooded and changed course. And we've got Carter Lake now, which is part of Iowa, on the west side of the Missouri River. And it wasn't until 1892, after five years of fighting that out through the courts and eventually to the U.S. Supreme Court, that that land was finally determined that that land would continue to belong to Iowa. Iowa has 56,000 square miles, and that's two square miles. They didn't want to give it up. They wanted to keep it. And that's, that's the way it is. I mean, people are very protective about their land. We see that land wasn't to be confiscated. Uh, you know, again, we already mentioned the, the incidents there in Acts chapter 2 and, and, and chapter 4, but in First Chronicles 21-24, many of you are familiar with the story of David. He did not seize the land of Ornan, but insisted on paying the full price for it. Uh, he just... That was what he wanted done. He didn't, he, you know, he recognized that that land belonged to that individual and he wasn't going to abuse his authority and abuse his power like a lot of governments do and just come in and seize that land without adequate compensation. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 8, God instructed the Israelites that they were to lend those things that the poor needed to meet their needs, not give. Lend. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, you don't need to turn there, but in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, God had instructed the Israelites not to harvest the corners of the field. They were not to do such a thorough harvest that nothing was left for the poor. The land was still theirs. They weren't told to give the land to the poor. They weren't even told to go and harvest the grain for the poor. They were just to give the opportunity to the poor to come and harvest the grain themselves. There's a big difference. And we're told here in verse number 6 at the end of the verse, this is an inheritance. And people get very sentimental about inheritances. Uh, I remember when my grandpa died. He had a rocking chair, and most of us really don't remember him doing a whole lot other than sitting in that rocking chair because he was already, you know, pretty old by the time we got to know him. And, you know, when they had the auction, the auction off all the stuff, some of my mom's sisters, they just, I couldn't believe the price of that rocking chair. It, to me, it just seemed like a piece of firewood. But they just they had to have it, and it was getting kind of ugly. Uh, you know, that's how people... That's how people get. I mean, and it's that's it's an inheritance. You know, it's got value to some to you know to the person who's inheriting it. That you know, again, as I said earlier, I have I have no particular interest. I'm not envious of the land of Israel. It it, it you know it's not special to me. Um, but to them, you know, it, it makes all the difference. It's their inheritance from the Lord. I remember years ago, I when I moved out to my place, I had a. There was an iron plow in my front yard. Huge. 
and it weighed 1,100 pounds. And I asked the, the neighbor guy, he lived up the street, you know, he was, he was pretty old. He says, oh, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a classic. I mean, that's a treasure, you know, you don't want to get rid of that. I said, yeah, I want to get rid of it. I'm tired of mowing around it. He said, oh, that's worth a lot of money. Somebody will pay. I said, well, do you want it? Well, no, I don't want it, but a lot of people would really. And so I talked to another guy. Oh, yeah, that, that's a, that's a valuable, you know, piece. Well, do you want it? No, I don't want it. I couldn't find anybody who wanted it, even though everybody kept telling me it was so valuable. I, I put it in my pickup. I tore it apart and put it in my pickup and hauled it to the scrap dealer, and I got $11 for it. Iron was a penny a pound. But everybody was telling me how wonderful it was. It wasn't wonderful to me. It was just something I had to mow around, and that trees grew, grew up in the middle of, and, you know, people have different perspectives. Well, this land was, it was valuable to the Israelites. And, of course, none of us are, you know, we're well aware of the endless wars that have been fought over that land over the last several thousand years. Verse number 8. Again, we're reminded that Moses divided this land, uh, the, the land for the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. It was Moses that was the overseer and instrumental in the distribution of that land. So that, that's verses 8 through 12. And, and again, there's, there's many references again to Sihon and Og, and, and God is just continually driving home the point that, that, you know, that, that He was faithful, that He delivered these people into the hands of the Israelites, even though they were giants. That wasn't any obstacle for them. Um, you know, God was very faithful. And, and again, they, they didn't even have to give up that land. You know, they, they, if they would have allowed the Israelites to pass through it, which, had, which Moses pleaded with them to do, then there wouldn't have been any trouble. They would have just passed on through. But uh, again, as, as we've seen in Joshua 24, verse 8, it was of the Lord that, that that happened so that Israel could take that land. Verse number 13 is really indicative of a lot of verses that we're going to see over the next several chapters. Take a look at verse number 13. It says, Nevertheless, the children of Israel expelled not the Gershurites nor the Machathites, but the Gershurites and the Machathites dwell among Israel until this day. Um, we see that a lot in the next several chapters. You know, they didn't, their, their obedience, they just didn't carry things through. Um, God wanted them to have completely driven out all the inhabitants. They don't do that. You know, when you get to the book of Judges, that's really the theme over and over is that all of these nations that were left behind, all of these people that were left behind that weren't driven out ended up being a thorn in their side. Um, and really, the criticism there is clear. You know, at the end of the verse, it says, dwell among the Israelites unto this day. God did not want the Israelites dwelling amongst these people. If, if the only reference was to the land, it probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. In other words, if if the two and a half tribes had taken some land and not the rest of the land, that wouldn't that wouldn't have been that wouldn't have mattered. That wasn't part of the original promise to Abraham. But whatever land they took, they needed to drive the people out of because God didn't want them dwelling them dwelling together. So that's that's very clear. That's a criticism. So their lack of persistence is just kind of a constant theme. You know, they're very gung ho about a lot of this stuff, but they don't they don't complete it. Um, you know, some of us are like that. We, we have a lot of projects that we've started and we don't seem to get a lot of them done. I remember when I was growing up uh, on, you know, in the early 70s on Sunday, more, uh, Sunday afternoons, my mom and dad always watched Ma and Pa Kettle movies. I don't know if any of you remember Ma and Pa Kettle, but it seemed like every movie, Pa Kettle had a, had a line in there where something broke down and he said, I'm going to fix that one of these days, but he never got it fixed. 
And if you're, if you're, you know, if you're too young to remember anything about Mom and Pa Ketty, just think of Wally in the Dilbert cartoon. That's Wally. You know, he's just never going to get anything done. And, you know, that's kind of the idea here with the Israelites. I mean, they started out gung-ho. They were very excited. You know, they, they actually accomplished a lot, but they didn't complete the task. I mean, they, they didn't get it done. And so again, verse 13 is just kind of, you know, there's going to be a lot of verses that, that are like that. We've got to be faithful in the mundane day-to-day things. You know, just the day-to-day maintenance of our, of our life. Certainly spiritually. Well, well, when you get to Judges chapter 2 and 3, I mean, God says there in, in about eight different verses that it was, it was, you know, He, He says, I, I didn't have those, I didn't, those nations weren't driven out so that I could use them to test you. So, I mean, it, it's always that dilemma, you know, God is critical of them for not having done it, but yet then He uses the fact that they didn't do it to test them, to test future generations. Yeah, complacency. Um. Right. Yeah, fear. The fear set in again. Yeah, they they just were intimidated. Yeah, they're given specific instructions that they were to continue to pursue these people and drive them out. So, yeah. Verses 14 and 33 are, are both make reference to the fact that the Levites were not given specific land to, to be owners of. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that right now because we'll actually, um, there will be plenty of opportunity in some of the subsequent chapters to deal with that. But they were given land to live on and they were given the best land and they were given land to support not only their families but also their livestock so even though the distinction is made here that they weren't given land to 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 be owners of they were certainly given land to to dwell on and you know the the emphasis here notice verse 14 it says the sacrifices of the lord god of israel made by fire are their inheritance and that's referring to all of the things that the people brought as far as the offerings and the tithes you know, they were they were able to eat of the, you know, when you were to bring those things, they were to be the best that you had. And then in verse 33, it says the tribe of, you know, but of the, unto the tribe of Levi, Moses gave not any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance. And that statement was, you know, originally stated by Moses in Deuteronomy. And that's going to be repeated several times throughout the remainder of the book of Joshua. 
that God is always reminding the Levites that they do not need to look at themselves or, or consider themselves in any way having been slighted. That, you know, he is much better than any piece of land. And, you know, they can't lose God. They could lose the land, but they couldn't lose the Lord. And so, you know, what a lesson for us. I mean, we are supposed to, you know, we don't piously discount the things that God has given us, you know, as saying, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, surrender my ownership to anything to demonstrate my faithfulness to the Lord. No, God doesn't say that at all. But he says, make sure you recognize where those things came from. Make sure that you're more grateful for the God that gave them to you than the things themselves. And that's really the, the idea there that is being portrayed with the Levites. You know, they're, they're to consider their, their special relationship with the Lord of infinitely more importance than any material blessings that they could have ever been given. But nevertheless, they get those. They, they get the land and they get the best land and, and they're well taken care of. All right, we're 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 about out of time. Anybody, uh, last final thought? We're pretty much out of time. But uh... All right, you're dismissed.